The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 8 this evening. Leviticus chapter 8, and our study is the fourth of five Old Testament offerings given to Israel in their worship of Jehovah God. There are five principal offerings, and there are variations of them on special occasions, but basically every offering uh, is drawn from one of these five offerings. And as we did back in April, I want to combine the Lord's Supper observance uh, with this study that we have of the sacrifices, because it is appropriate. The Lord's Supper is a picture of Christ's offering for sins. Sweet savor and non-sweet savor are combined in the Lord's Supper as we see uh, the Lord's death and the symbolism of the cup. And then we see his nourishment and our fellowship with him in the symbolism of the bread. This evening we are discussing the sin offering. And this is described in the fourth chapter of Leviticus. And then again in the eighth and the ninth chapters. I'm not going to read that entire text. We took time to read the entire fourth chapter last Sunday night. But to introduce the subject again, we're going to look at the eighth chapter in verse number 14. Chapter 8, verse number 14. And he brought the bullock for the sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the bullock for the sin offering. And he slew it. And Moses took the blood and put it upon the horns of the altar round about with his finger and purified the altar, and poured the blood at the bottom of the altar, and sanctified it to make reconciliation upon it. And he took all the fat that was upon the inwards, and the call above the liver, and the two kidneys, and their fat, and Moses burned it upon the altar. But the bullock, and his hide, his flesh, and his dung, he burnt with fire without the camp, as the Lord commanded Moses. In the last message, we looked at the significance of this scripture here in chapter 8 and also chapter 9 regarding the order of the offerings. And I'm going to return to that discussion in just a few minutes uh, to add some things and review just a little bit. But I remind you that the sin offering uh, from last week, we discussed how this is a non-sweet savor offering. And you've been through 11 sermons previously, and so surely we now get this, this concept that it's anchored in your heart now that sweet savor offerings do not have anything to do with with uh, sin. There is no forgiveness of sin or any uh, sacrifice for sin that's sin, seen in a sweet savor offering. Those represent Christ in the perfection of his holy life. They're about the sweetness of his satisfaction to God. And then also the appeal of Christ uh, in his goodness to man. So he is the perfect man in a perfect life doing what Adam could not do. And particularly, those offerings showed how that Christ satisfied the law in every detail in both, in both tables. First of all, that he showed to, that we are to love God supremely. Of course, that's first table. And then also to love our fellow man. That's the second table. And this is why at the very beginning we saw a burnt offering. And in that burnt offering, everything went up to God. The whole animal goes up to God showing complete devotion. And then there's that meal offering 
That pictured Christ in his perfect character, the evenness of his life, the sweet aroma of holiness that's in Christ, his complete dedication to the, to the Holy Spirit, the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And so the meal offering is, a, is an example of sanctification as we obey the commandments. Then the third offering is the peace offering. That offering was about love for our fellow man. And it corresponded to the second part of the commandments. Uh, and the one who offered in the peace offering brought of the fruit of his own labors, the fruit of his hands, and that's the picture of good works that we do for one another. And, and so it's very important that we separate that offering from the offering that we're talking about now, which is the sin offering, because there's nothing that you can do in your own labor that will help you to get to heaven. There's nothing that can save you. The peace offering then is about the life of a Christian, not somebody who's seeking Christ in salvation. So the sweet saver views Christ from that side, that's from the human side, from the per, as the perfect man providing for us the perfection that we can't find in Adam. And I think one of the most interesting parts of this that we discussed in the last message was that prior to the giving of the law at Sinai, no one made sin offerings. Before the law, all the offerings were the sweet savor variety, even though the term sweet savor wasn't used. And it seems very, very strange that a non-sweet savor offering was not made, but that has more to do with the, the character of the law and the purpose of the law, that the law was given to show that we're sinners. And so sometimes we wrestle with scriptures like Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, that says, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For where low law, no law is, there is no transgression. For where no law is, there is no transgression. And so if there's no transgression without the law, then were the people before the law guilty of sin? Well, of course they were. We know they were. Adam sinned. That's the cause of the fall of man. Cain killed Abel. And there was so much sin that God destroyed the world with a flood and only saved eight souls alive. So yes, we definitely know there was sin before the law. So Romans 4.15 in that passage of Scripture means that the law was added to help detect our sin. It makes us sure of what God requires it clearly identifies when we have transgressed. So the law is given to show how helpless we are, how, how depraved we are, and then to lead us to the righteousness that comes through faith. So we feed that information back into the sacrificial system, and we see that a sin offering could not have made, been made before the law without the proper understanding of what that offering was for. And then another distinction to note is before the law the offerings that were, were made were for acceptance with God. What the author would do is, uh, offer would do is bring his sacrifice to please the Lord in an attitude of worship. And so that offering is an acknowledgement of the one true God. The character of heathen sacrifices made at that time were different. They also brought offerings to please their God. In their context, that was a very bad thing. In Israel's context, it's a good thing. Because for those who are not believers in the true God, they had no sense at all of love for God. Not like the Israelites did, a love for Jehovah God. But then, the Bible says, the law entered, 
And it showed the exceeding sinfulness of man. And so Israel could see themselves in utter helplessness. No one can satisfy God for sin. Sweet savor offerings are only a part of what God requires because also there has to be forgiveness and there must be atonement. So then, there is a new thought that's introduced and now there has to be expiation of sin. That is, expiation is man before God as a guilty sinner. The animal that he brings as an offering is representative of that man. It's his substitute dying in his place in order to take away the penalty of the judgment of sin. So expiation, if you just want to mark down a definition of that, expiation simply means take, take the guilt of sin away. Sin is expiated. Sin, the guilt of sin, is taken away. And so the offer doesn't come with sweet savor to be accepted by God, but he comes as a condemned sinner. He comes as a person needing atonement for his sins and to have those sins satisfied uh, according to the law. Now, I, ho I hope that kind of helps you understand why the first offerings that are made were the sweet savor. The non-sweet savor is satisfaction of the law, and the law had not yet been given until Sinai. Now, to refresh you just a little on the first point of the message from last week, we discussed the importance of the order of the offerings, the order of them. There is a difference in the institutional order and the applicational order. I understand that maybe a few people were confused by this the last time. There is an institutional order in the sacrifices, but there is also an applicational order. And the institutional order is as we see it outlined in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Uh, you see first burnt offering, then you have meal offering, then peace offering, sin offering, and then trespass offering. That's the order the offerings are given, but that's not the order in which they were applied. The difference is the viewpoint. From our viewpoint, as fallen creatures, the applicational order must be the sin offering and trespass offering first. It must be the non-sweet savor before the sweet savor. And this is the reason that whenever we think of Christ, the first thing that we think of him is his death for sin. Our first apprehension of Christ is that he died for our sins, he forgives our sins, and we can never approach the holy God with sin. And so in our gospel presentations, we take people to the law, we show them that they are sinners, and we show them that they must believe on Christ. They must receive him because he's the one that takes sin away. And we encourage people, come to Christ without delay. Do that now because you don't know how long you're going to live. Life is very uncertain. And so we take people to the law and we convince them of their sin. Then we take them to Christ for the removal of their sin. Now the order of the sacrificial offerings uh, proves in gospel presentations that law comes before grace. That's important. This is why we discussed that the sin offering represents a response to the law. And every sinner is brought to faith in Christ in that way. We bring them to the cross to see the penalty of sins paid in the death of Jesus Christ. Now the applicational order is what we see in chapters 8 and 9. And that's the reason that tonight I began with chapter 8 verses 14 to 17. And then in chapter 9, Aaron offered a sin offering before he offered the burnt offering. You can't get to the sanctified life of Christ presented in the, non, in the, in the sweet savor before you get to, you 
you, you, you recognize the, the death of Christ in the non-sweet savor. You, that's recognition of justification in Christ that comes before our sanctification. And then I might say that the applicational order is the part that most religion confuses because this is what people want. They want to come to God based upon what they have done. And so they ask God, look at my good life. Look at the things that I've done. And they try to skip by Jesus Christ and being justified in Him and they try to present their good works to God as the reason that they should be justified, that's thrown out. That's nixed here by the applicational order of the sacrifices. They need Christ first. They must uh, have sins confessed. They must be forgiven before they can eat of the sweet savor. The Israelites could eat of sweet savor. But the institutional order is, is different. Uh, this is from God's viewpoint. The applicational order, as I said, that's man's viewpoint. We must come to Christ first in his death. But the institutional order, as we see here in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, is from God's viewpoint. This is the way it comes down from God. And in his order, the sweet savor comes before the non-sweet savor. Why is that? Well, because it is the life of Christ. So from God's point of view, the son must be tried and proved by the law. And he's tried and proved to be perfect. And he can't be accepted as the sacrifice until he's proved to be without sin. And so when he had met those qualifications, he became the sin offering. That only makes sense. It's life before death. And if he came down to he from heaven to, uh, to die without having made satisfaction to the law, then he has no righteousness that is imputed to us by faith. There is no earned righteousness that can be given to us. And that, those two things, institutional and applicational order, are just part of the very, very fine distinctions in, in the all-wise God and his plan. Now next, we need to consider the acknowledgement of sin. The two non-sweet savor offerings are a testimony of man as a sinner, the trespass offering is the one that's next, and we're not there yet, but we do need to discuss it just very briefly to understand why there are two of these. Why are there two non-sweet savor offerings? So you see sin offering, and there is trespass offering. And you wonder, well, aren't sins and trespasses the same thing? What's the difference between sin and trespasses? In one sense, there isn't any. Sins are trespasses, trespasses are sins. That's the sense that John spoke of in 1 John 3, 4, he said, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. So in that viewpoint, actual transgression, that is doing what the law says not to do, or not doing what the law says to do, that's a violation. And that is sin. So the trespass offering treats that aspect, the, the actual uh, commission of the sin. But the sin offering is different. This is the view of man in his nature, that he is a sinner by nature. Before he acts, a person is already dead in sin because of his nature. So he doesn't sin to become a sinner. He sins because he is a sinner. And this is the, this is the difference between uh, what we call Pauline doctrine, the doctrine of Paul, and Pelagian doctrine. Now I want you to hold on to that thought for just a minute. I'll come back to that. But before we get to the commission of sin, the sin nature has to be dealt with. So let's think about the sin nature, that every person is born in sin. Everybody comes out of the womb as a sinner before the first sin is committed. And it sounds very strange for me to see it, say it this way, but every 
person is born dead. In the spiritual world, everyone is stillborn. Now, I don't mean to be unsympathetic or callous in the way that I use those terms. I'm very, very sorry if there might be a lady here or one who hears the message later that has experienced a stillborn child. That is a traumatic tragedy for a mother. I know something about that. Uh, Fifty years ago, my, my sister-in-law carried twin babies to term not knowing that they had died in the womb. Now, she recognized there was something that was wrong, uh, but the doctor didn't discuss that with her. He didn't prepare her for what she would find out when she was ready to deliver. And so at birth, she expected that she would have two healthy little babies, but instead they were stillborn. So I don't say this lightly. I was young. I, I remember how horrible that was. But in the spiritual world, do you know that this is the tragedy of every person? That we are stillborn spiritually. Now the Bible describes each of us that way, dead in sin. Many don't like that teaching and they find it hard to accept. So they develop doctrinal systems that deny that truth. And that brings me back to Pelagius. He was a, he was a Roman Catholic priest in the 4th century who denied original sin. He didn't believe in moral inability. He preached that no one is born in sin. There is no inherent sin nature. And nobody becomes a sinner until there's actual commission of sin. This is the same thing as I taught you before, as what Charles Finney in the revival time of the 19th century taught, and that's still preached in some churches. Some called Finney an Arminian, but Finney was not an Arminian. He was a he was more heretical than that. He was a Pelagian. And he taught that people are capable of obeying God as a self-willed response to the law if they choose to do it. And then there are others, many Baptists, American Baptists, many of the fundamental Baptists, many Southern Baptists that have adopted a similar viewpoint, but it's an Arminian viewpoint. And they do believe in a sin nature, but they also believe in moral capability. In other words, the fall of man was not radical that the will is still capable of bending itself towards God. So that causes them to dance around dead in Ephesians 2 and believe that man still has ability until it's wakened by prevenient grace. That is a, a pre-grace, a grace that's in man that is active and allows him to make a choice for or against God without any influence of the Holy Spirit. But we take the Scriptures just as they are. Paul said, we are dead in trespasses and sin. And contrary to what I, uh, some that I've heard lately, uh, this is the traditional view that was preached by the apostles. Dead means dead. Ephesians means spiritual death in which there is no life towards God. Now, at least the Roman Catholics did this. Their official dogma rejects Pelagianism. Uh, he was a heretic, and so rather than follow Pelagius, they followed Augustine on this, and uh, at least this far, that they do believe that man is born with a sin nature. That's about the only thing that they get right. But their remedy for that sin nature is heretical itself. They believe that original sin needs to be dealt with, and the way to deal with it is to wash it away in baptism. To wash original sin away when they baptize a baby. Now, returning to the sin offering and Leviticus 4 and what we've just read in chapter 8, this is an offering that's made because of the sin nature, not because of sins that flow out of that nature. 
And, and this chapter of, of chapter 4 is comprehensive in teaching that all people are sinners. Now, I don't know about your, what your Bible does. My Bible breaks it into subheadings. Uh, the chapter says when a priest sins, when the congregation sins, when a ruler sins, when an individual sins. And there are four categories there that are intended to show all people of all kinds are sinners. So looking at this then, how do we know that this offering is about sin nature and not about actual transgression? Well, there isn't any reference in the fourth chapter to any particular sin. But if you glance over in chapter 5 where it talks about the trespass offering, it's different. Sins are listed there. Here's what you do if you do this thing. And here's what you do if you do this other thing and you bring an offering for this particular sin. But that's not true in the sin offering. We don't see any offering for uh, a sin, a particular sin that's named here. So this offering is important because it shows us that the sin nature has to be dealt with not only the sins that we commit. Now let me just backtrack a little bit on something I've said before. that I've never seen a person who denies particular redemption who argues from Old Testament sacrifices. I've never seen a person who denied the doctrine of election who argued from Old Testament sacrifices. I've never seen somebody who argues that there is prevenient grace by looking at Old Testament sacrifices. And why don't they? Because the pictures don't match. They can't line that up with what we have, the types that we have in the Old Testament. The symbolism is off. So what this sacrifice shows is the helplessness of man. He is depraved and he is deprived of any way that he can come to God until there is an offering made for his sin. Christ must satisfy God for him. And then when that sacrifice is correctly made, as it was in Christ, God is always satisfied. And when God is satisfied, there is no sin charged. I listened to a preacher who just gutted Ephesians 2.8 of its meaning. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that out of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And you know what he said? He was wrestling with the problem of total inability. And he knew that Ephesians 2.8 would shoot his doctrine in the head. So he said, this is a Baptist preacher who said, faith is not a gift from God. So what is a gift from God in that verse? Is it grace? Is it salvation? Is it faith? What is it? Well, the answer to the question is, it's all the gift of God. Every part of that's the gift of God. There is no salvation that arises from you. And so if you want to say, well, faith comes from me, you need to throw out Ephesians 2.8 because it's going to kill your doctrine. You can't have that. This, th that verse is not going to help you. And Old Testament sacrifices will not help you. They're death to universal atonement. They are death to Arminianism, to Pelagianism, to fundamentalism, all the certain types of fundamentalism. You've got to stay out of the Old Testament if you want to get away from the doctrines of grace. So this offering is the recognition all are sinners, that every type of person is a sinner. So Paul has a reason to write Romans 3.10 and 3.23. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now I'll not tell you that other Baptists who take issues with what I've just said do not believe that people are sinners. They do believe it. And they do preach the very same verses. There's a rule in polemics that says that you don't attribute an opinion to your opponent that he does not own. And that's one of the most frustrating, frustrating parts of defending the doctrines of grace. It's to hear others describe what we believe. 
And so you get the wildest, fanciful accusations that are made against us. So I, I choose not to use certain terms when I preach because I know they're already very highly emotionally charged and people just ignore everything else because they've heard a term and they don't acknowledge that we believe what we really do believe. But I'm not going to do what others do. We're not going to accuse them of believing that people aren't sinners or that they believe we're saved by our works even though their, their definition of faith makes faith the work of man. So all that we do then is accuse them of inconsistency in the Scriptures. They don't understand that what they affirm one place with their doctrine, they destroy in another. So they have a sin offering, a sin offering that is not enough to satisfy God. It's the only consistent conclusion you can come to if somebody says, well, Christ died for everybody in the world, and yet there are some people that are in hell. The only conclusion you come to is that sin offering did not completely satisfy God. So the sin offering says all people in all these categories are sinners, they are helpless, and it is the nature that causes them to sin. And they cannot escape that nature without divine help. In other words, naturally, they will not believe God. There is none that seeks God, exactly as the psalmist said and exactly as Paul quoted the psalmist. Their nature is against God. They're not going to look for God. How clear is Paul about it? What does man need? He says in Romans 8, 5 through 8, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Get that verse. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is the enemy of God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So what has to be done about it? We listen to Jesus instead of others. No one, John six forty four. no one can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up the last day. Do you understand that that is a guarantee in that verse for every person who is drawn by the Holy Spirit that they will be saved? I will raise him up the last day, Jesus said. All that the Father, uh, Father gives me, and he said all that he sent me, he, he sent the Spirit to draw them. They can't come, but I will raise them at the last day when the Spirit calls. Now our question then is, does repentance and faith please God? Does it? I'm going to ask you a question. You can answer that one. Does repentance and faith please God? Okay, that pleases God. How can those that are in the flesh please God by repentance and faith? Tell me where in your carnal nature does repentance and faith come from? Where? I hope you would say, well, it's not there. Not according to the Word of God. Repentance and faith can't come out of your nature. So how's that going to surface when the nature does not contain anything that's pleasing to God? So I listened to a fellow who explains Ephesians 2.1, and he says, dead does not mean dead because spiritual death and physical death are not exact parallels. And he ridiculed us because he said, we believe they are exact parallels. That's an example of polemical injustice. There's none of us that believes that spiritual death and physical death are exact parallels. Spiritual death has to do with the nature of man. What is the nature of man capable of doing? Nothing in the spiritual world. His nature prevents it. 
1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, for sure, we see that's not a man physically dead. Can he read the Bible? Oh, sure, he can read the Bible. Can he listen to a gospel presentation? Yes, he can listen to it all day long. Of course he can. But when he hears, he believes no differently than he would believe a history lesson, a history book. He believes like the devil believes. The devil believes also and trembles. His problem, and man's problem is, man cannot appropriate the gospel to himself. He can't apprehend it of himself. Physically, there isn't any physical incapability. The problem is moral. She'll show me in the Bible where it says that there is any moral good thing in man. He's not going to believe the things of the Spirit even though he has a brain physically capable of processing information and understanding it. The issue here is moral capability. He is not morally capable. That's what the Bible means by spiritual death. So morally, we are dead to God. And so you can preach to a spiritually dead person all day long. He's not going to do anything with the information. He will not move towards God if he's told a thousand times because his intellect is not the problem. If intellect is a problem, then only smart people get saved. Something, what the Bible teaches, something has to awaken the spiritually dead. Spiritual death must be overcome. It must be awakened. That's the correlation between physical death and spiritual death. Now then, we look at resurrection. In the physical resurrection, the dead body is energized by the call of God. There isn't a dead body that comes out of any grave anywhere until God gives the signal. The body's dead. It doesn't move until the trump of God, that's the signal of God, raises the dead. That's the awakening to that sound. And he can't hear it because he has no ability until God awakens him to it. And in the spiritual resurrection, the morally dead person does not understand. Physically, he hears. Spiritually, he doesn't understand because he's dead to God. So the Holy Spirit does exactly what Ephesians 2.1 says, and then the Holy Spirit quickens, and then that person is able to respond in repentance and faith. So on one hand, you have, in a resurrection, you have the absence of physical life. And in the spiritual resurrection, you had the absence of moral life, moral incapability. And that doesn't, that's not changed until the Holy Spirit awakens the soul. Folks, these concepts are not really hard to get. They're not hard to get unless they mess with your doctrine. And so if a preacher knows that spiritual death is going to destroy everything else for him, then what does he do? He starts looking for ways to get around spiritual death and all the scriptures that teach it. And so his doctrine leaves us with a Holy Spirit that has nothing to do but to watch and see if a dead man can dig himself out of a grave. And we say eternity is not long enough for it to happen. And they say it can happen anytime he wants. That's not what the Bible says. The sin offering is about the comprehension of the sin nature. Now, I want to show you one other way, and we're going to end here, rather than getting into different categories of chapter 4. This is Paul's argument in Romans 1 and 2, and uh, it sets him up for these famous statements that he makes in chapter 3, where he quotes the Psalms about the sinfulness of man. And so in Romans 1 and 2, 
man as a sinner is revealed, as a sinner, is revealed both in those who have the law and those who do not have the law. The law does not make us sinners. It only reveals that we are. It's the sin nature that makes us sinners. Now first, Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then, as you know, in chapter 1, Paul proceeds to talk about Gentiles, Greeks, barbarians, ones the Jews would never touch because they had changed the glory of God into idols, and they worshipped creeping things. So those are the ones that he deals with first. And in their, in their confusion, the Gentiles turn to every vile thing imaginable. And so they do everything that God deplores in the law. Their religion is abominable. Uh, homosexuality, adultery, lies. Verse 29 says, all unrighteousness, murder, strife, deceit, and so on. It's a list of everything the commandments strictly forbid. So there's no doubt, reading chapter 1, these people are vile, wicked sinners. No doubt they are worthy of death, which he concludes is going to happen to them in verse number 32, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So those are Gentiles. And by the way, you read Romans chapter 1, and you see if there's anything in there that leaps out at you and says, this person that he's describing has a spark of good in him. That there's just a little flint there of provenient grace. That if you could just strike that, and if he can do that by his own effort, the flame of saving faith will arise, and then he can be saved. Doesn't seem to me like there's anything like that at all in Romans chapter 1. Then Paul goes on to chapter 2. He says to the readers, now hold on, brother. Now he's talking to Jews. If you're a Jew who's reading what I've just said to the Gentiles, and they don't have the law, you need to wait. Because you do the same things. Romans 2.1, Therefore thou art an inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doeth the same things. How do they do the same? I mean, you could search high and low, you could visit every synagogue in every city, and you would not find an idol of a creeping thing. And you're not going to find homosexuality and the homosexuals and temple prostitutes at Jewish synagogues. None of that's physically seen. But all of it's spiritually present. It was in their heart. Adultery was in their heart. Nobody physically killed anybody. But hatred was in their heart. So what's Paul's conclusion? Verse number 9. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentiles. So the Jews thought, we're better. We've got the law. Paul says you are worse than Gentiles without the law because you have greater responsibility, thou, that you have it. So then comes a verse that's a particular interest to us, Romans 2.12. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Now listen, uh, we're getting a little theological on you here tonight, so you've got to just stay awake for, to, to get this. You are going to perish without the law. Why will you perish? Sin is the transgression of the law. So how are you going to perish without the law? You don't need the law for condemnation. It will condemn you, but you don't need it to stand condemned before God. You are already condemned. How? 
the sin nature. Sin nature is already there. Your transgression of the law is only a manifestation of your sin nature. So let me ask you, after reading Romans 1, all the, all the awful stuff that's there, then you read Romans 2, Paul says Jews are out, also guilty. Out of this horrible wickedness and contempt for God, how does faith suddenly arise because a preacher read Scripture to you? Because a scripture, preacher read something from the Bible. How does faith arise? Is a person going to judge himself and, and conclude after hearing the gospel? He concludes after hearing the gospel, I think I'll change. Therefore, I shall be saved. Is that possible? Ask Job. He's pretty good at these things. Job 4, 14, 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. And I'll come right back at you again. Is faith a good thing? Then how is faith going to come from you? And it doesn't come from either one of these groups, do you see? It doesn't come from Gentiles, and it doesn't come from Jews. Why? Because the wicked nature prevents it. It cannot happen. It will not happen. And this is why faith must be a gift from God. And the preacher who says faith is man's, that is the same as dooming every person. If you say faith has to be yours, and if you think that you can be saved before the Holy Spirit changes you so you can respond in faith, you'll die in your sin and you'll go to hell. If that's what you honestly believe. I don't need God, I'll change myself. So does Paul labor in these two chapters, and then he works harder in chapter 3, just to throw away all of his arguments and say, well, you don't really need God's help to overcome this. It is in your ability to believe. Nobody proves this like Paul. No, it's not in your ability to believe. Well, then we have to answer another question. What about Romans 10? This is the scripture that's always pulled out by everybody on this subject. Romans chapter 10. Turn there for a minute. We want to look at it. Can you rip out nine chapters of Romans to get to Romans chapter 10 and throw all the things that Paul said before away? Romans 10 must be taken in the context of chapter 9 and all the preceding chapters before it. So what am I talking about? Well, Romans chapter 10, verse number 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Does Paul say anything here about ability? Does he say, whosoever shall not call on the name of the Lord shall not be saved? Well, of course he doesn't say that, so what is he going to say? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The verses here do not treat ability, but they state a fact that's already been explained to us in Romans chapter 9. 
read it all. Who are the whosoevers? Whosoevers are Jews and Gentiles. And in chapter 9, it tells us there that God has mercy on whom he wills. That's plainly stated in that ninth chapter. Then you go back to chapter 8. You've got to remember, we're considering all the scriptures here. This is Paul's argument. Chapter 8, verse 28, you know it. All things work together for the good to them that, are to love, that love God, or to them that are called according to his purpose. So, who are the called according to his purpose? The whosoevers. The whosoevers of chapter 10 are the ones that are called according to God's purpose. Now, I'll make one more comment. The election of God's people in chapter 9... In chapter 9, that's denied. And they say, well, that's not talking about individuals. That's talking about national election. That's speaking of Israel. In chapter 10, guess what? He's also speaking of Israel. And when you get to chapter 11, guess what? He's also speaking about Israel. But election is denied that it's national election, not individuals, which is an argument that falls under its own weight because I've never seen one nation of any kind that's not made up of individuals. So this, is, this, uh, this, this same kind of comments were made by, by a preacher who was trying to avoid the implications of Romans chapter 9. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And he said, well, that's not really talking about that. This is national election. And that probably, actually, this is a Baptist preacher said this because he knew he was caught here. And so he said, Jacob and Esau, the Bible indicates that both of them are saved men. Most likely, Jacob and Esau are saved men. So it's not talking about individuals, it's talking about national election. Well, there's a little problem with that. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know that afterward he would have inherited blessing. He was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. That doesn't sound to me like a profane person is talking about a saved person. Esau's not a saved person. There's no argument there for somebody to say, oh, that's national election. It's not talking about individuals. God said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. These are all subjects for another time. The same fellow said, I can argue these doctrines on an academic level. And I heard nothing academic in anything that he had to say. Now anyway, let's go back to Romans chapter 10. That's where we were. Somehow, these verses that we find in Romans chapter 10 that are buried between chapters 9 and 11, suddenly get separated from everything else that's been written. It's all separated. Election goes out the door, and these are urged upon us to prove. Romans chapter 10 is urged upon us to prove that nobody's elect, everybody can have faith, nobody has moral inability, which is a very strange exposition of Scripture for those who claim they are biblical, traditional, expository preachers. So thank God for this inconsistencies do not condemn us to hell. You can be inconsistent in doctrine, and some things won't bother you as far as that goes. You can still go to heaven. But let me tell you, folks, there are some inconsistencies you cannot live with. You can't live with them because they're such important doctrines that they can send you to hell if you don't believe the truth. So here's what we must realize about salvation in Christ. It is from the Lord. Grace is from God. And faith 
is from God. And salvation is from God. They are all gifts of God that God gives to vile, guilty sinners on two bases. And these two bases the Scriptures describe, number one, the basis on which you are saved, number one, the good pleasure of God's will. Just because He wants to. Just because it pleases Him. The second issue, the basis on which you are saved, the sin offering. Christ offered a sacrifice for sins. That's the basis on which we are saved. Now that brings us to the Lord's Supper observance this evening. How much is the love of God magnified when we understand that Christ did this for us? That He did what we couldn't do. That we're dead in trespasses and sins, but He quickened us to life so that we can repent and believe. Now, does it glorify God more if we say we're the ones that did this? Faith is ours. Repentance is ours. We do that. Our will is bent towards God. And we just stand back and we tell God, you wait and see what I will do. The sacrifice of God's Son may bring you glory, or it might not. You just, God, you just need to wait and see what I'll do. And I'll let you know where the Christ will be glorified. Think about that as we take the supper. Whom do we glorify? Do we glorify us or do we glorify God? And see if there's not a sense as you take this supper that there is unworthiness, that God should do anything for us, that He should, he should do anything for vile, wicked sinners. Why should God do anything for us? Think about that as you take the supper tonight. Now, the deacons will come and prepare. I want all of us to stand, and then we're going to sing the communion hymn. I want to pray first, and then we're going to sing the communion hymn, and then we'll enter into our observance of the Lord's Supper. Let's please stand. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and we've talked about some difficult things tonight, maybe some doctrine that folks can't completely stay with and understand very well. We believe that we need to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. We're not just going to float on the surface in every sermon. So we need your people, Lord, to think, dig down deeply, put these things together, and see as we, we look at the Old Testament that we might understand New Testament doctrine better. And this is what we find when we look into the Old Testament, and the New Testament confirms that. And Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that's made for sin. And Lord, we thank you that out of the good pleasure of your will, you decide who will be saved. And if that was left to us, we would never be saved because we don't have the ability to come. And your word so clearly says this in so many places. There is no ability to come until your Holy Spirit opens blinded eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that great truth. And we come to the supper tonight in acknowledgement of that. Christ died for sin. He died for the sins of those who believe in him. And those sins are always satisfied by that sacrifice. God is always satisfied. His wrath is taken away for all for whom that sacrifice is made. We thank you, Lord, for that blessed truth as we sit in this supper tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. 
If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.